to just kind of shorthand this as book bans, I feel like leaves out that this is a very targeted effort about erasing certain people's stories or restricting young people's access to it. Vital information about gender and sexuality, vital information supplementing what they're getting in the classroom, which might be very little when it comes to the history of white supremacy in this country and its present. The library is, for me, the last of the public goods that exist that we don't have to ask people to dream about making. It exists. Mm. It is here. And if we lose it, we will not get it back. These are political institutions, and all of them are sites of contestation. Patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. To support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. The work we do is only possible because of the support of our patrons. And as a thank you for your support, we give you 52 extra episodes a year and access to our entire back catalog of bonus episodes. Anyways, if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, you could share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, Pick up a copy of Health Communism at your local bookstore. Pre-order a copy of Jules's new book coming in January called A Short History of Trans Misogyny or request them both at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So today I am here with my co-host, Jules Gil-Peterson. Hi, everyone. And the two of us are joined by two fantastic returning guests and friends of the panel to talk about libraries as an intersecting site of struggle against fascism and eugenics in the United States right now. So first joining us today is Mariam Kaba. Mariam is an organizer, educator, archivist, and curator whose work focuses on ending violence, dismantling the prison industrial complex, transformative justice, and supporting youth leadership development. She is the author and co-author of several books, including We Do This Till We Free Us, No More Police, and Let This Radicalize You, as well as the children's books Missing Daddy and See You Soon. She has also co-founded and is part of so many different organizations and projects, but the one that I'm going to name today is For the People Leftist Library Project, which is a decentralized, autonomous, volunteer-driven group working together towards a primary goal of identifying, resourcing, training, and helping to elect or appoint leftist candidates to public library boards across the United States. Their website is librariesforthepeople.org if you want to check it out. Miriam, welcome back to the Death Panel. Thank you for having me. And next we have Melissa Jira Grant. Melissa is a journalist, author, and documentary filmmaker who, as a staff writer at The New Republic, has been tirelessly covering the intersections of gender, sexuality, race, health, and reproductive justice, as well as the so-called law. Melissa is the author of the book Playing the Whore, the Work of Sex Work, published by Verso, and is working on her next book, which is forthcoming from Little Brown, called A Woman is Against the Law, Sex, Race, and the Limits of Justice in America. As I mentioned, Melissa has been covering these things closely for years now at TNR, but today we're also going to be specifically talking about one piece of hers from the beginning of September called 
librarians didn't sign up to be queer activists, but this year they are, which is about what has sort of been shorthanded as a fight against book bans and how that's actually much more than a kind of simple conversation about censorship and book removal from libraries. So, Melissa, welcome back to the Duff Panel. Always so nice to have you on. Oh, great to be here. Um, yeah, I, I'm going to steal so-called law, just so you know. That's, <laughs> That's a good one. Hell yeah. It's all yours. <laughs> Honestly, though, Jules and I are both so excited that you two could join us for this conversation today. You know, we had been texting and discussing your article, Melissa, which, uh, mm-hmm. you know, just talks about how the right is targeting public libraries, not just as a project of sort of moral outrage, and the policing of sexuality, that that is, of course, part of it. But it takes kind of the angle that the attacks on libraries are part of a larger strategy to undermine and dismantle public institutions, public goods, outflank the left, and really ultimately assert whose society is for. And I said to Jules, you know, I think the ideal version of our conversation would be to discuss this article um, with Maryam, who has been working on the For the People Leftist Library Project, which, again, is this explicitly political project aimed at building left power to protect, defend, and expand public libraries really kind of recognizing and describing the problem explicitly as about both censorship and divestment and deliberate attempts to weaken free resources for communities. So Mm. ultimately, what we're talking about today is how this is part of the logic and process of extractive privatization that our political economy has also been oriented around incentivizing. So I think just to start us off, so everybody listening is on the same page, Melissa, do you mind walking through briefly your argument in your article. And then I think, Maryam, it would be great to then afterwards get into a brief overview of what For the People Leftist Library Project is doing. So again, Melissa's article is from September 15th in The New Republic, and it is called Librarians Did Not Sign Up to Be Queer Activists, But This Year They Are. So for those who maybe you know don't have much context for what's going on beyond this kind of broad discussion of book bans, drag story hour bans, and library or school board takeovers by conservatives, you know, Melissa, can you walk through how your article expands that frame a bit and what you get into in terms of sort of locating libraries as sites of intersecting struggle? Sure. I mean, the short version is it's all the same people. You know, mm-hmm. we're talking about people who were spending the summer of 2020 pushing back on the uprisings after the murder of George Floyd or people who've been obsessed with shutting down drag story hour, people taking over school board meetings and library board meetings um, to threaten people who are doing the work of education and librarianship. Um, it's, It's the same groups kept coming up over and over again. And so for me, anyway, as someone who'd been reporting on those groups before the, they took this hard turn into going after the institution of the public library, um, had been reporting on their anti-queer and anti-trans politics, on their politics of sort of a white supremacist revisionary history that they, you know, always comes hand in hand with this. It felt like by the time this entire part of their fight about libraries had been shorthanded as like, there are book banners coming, there are book banners coming, we have to save the books. It risks leaving out some very important things. Um, One being that it's not just books, right? I mean, consistently, even before these groups have been organized in the way that they are right now, um, the, the books that they wanted to remove were 
most likely going to be books that had subject matter around race, particularly around Black history and the Black present. And one of the books that they've been going after is like a very recent kid-friendly biography of Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson. I mean, it's just ridiculous, like the level of stuff that they go after. I understand why people are like, really that? Like, this is absurd. Um, but also the consistently the top books that are challenged year after year before these groups got together in this particular way have been books about queer life, trans life, and particularly by queer authors of color. So mm. to just kind of shorthand this as book bans, I feel like leaves out that this is a very targeted effort about erasing certain people's stories or restricting young people's access to it. Vital information about gender and sexuality, vital information supplementing what they're getting in the classroom, which might be very little when it comes to the history of white supremacy in this country and its present. Um, and that the groups who are pushing these things also have a broader anti-LGBTQ and racist program that they are pushing. Um, it didn't feel coincidental to me that a lot of the people I met in the course of reporting this piece and an earlier one uh, in March, the librarians who were like kind of on the front lines of this were queer librarians and trans librarians who for them, you know, it wasn't just about defending the books, but it was about protecting the library as a space where they and their patrons felt safe and free to be there and have free inquiry and, you know, not have to worry about these Christian nationalist groups coming in and, you know, in some instances, following patrons around, recording them, following library workers around, recording them, harassing them. Um, for them, it's a workplace issue as well. And mm -hmm. that's a huge part of the conversation that's really been left out where, you know, the people who are being targeted are the same people who are writing the books that are getting banned or the same communities of people, sometimes the same people. Um, and that this is a fight about people in politics and not a sort of abstract fight about free speech and censorship. Absolutely. I really appreciate the way you laid that out, Melissa. I think, you know, I was in an event that Leftist Library Project did in early October, Miriam. Um, it was the one that was called, I think, uh, How They Did It, which was about mm -hmm. two different community-based projects um, in d very different contexts. And the one that was based in the South, which was the Louisiana Citizens Against Censorship, they had been dealing with specifically some of these kinds of like arbitrary book challenges, right? And what was just so striking about the discussion and what folks were bringing to that was just how uh, small and sort of centralized some of these like points of opposition were, where it's like, okay, it's this one person kind of going around the state of Louisiana, rallying this up. But the, the effect of it in terms of like how capturable certain um, aspects of state and local government can be, but also you know, that the, the the banning of the books, even though that is often like specifically that that sort of point of censorship is the first thing that's discussed when this is talked about, that that is actually just sort of so arbitrary and secondary to the actual like material concerns that these people are using banning books as a tool to achieve. So, Miriam, do you mind for folks who may not have heard of For the People Leftist Library Project, just talking about sort of the goal that everyone involved in this is sort of working towards and how you you see sort of the importance of also like the left rising to the occasion here? Yes, of course. Thanks, B, um, for that. I, as with everything, almost in the last over 10 years of my life, I've gotten myself into this because of a 
ridiculous tweet. Um, <laughs> I <laughs> that's real. I I was getting so frustrated um and i'd been progressively getting more and more frustrated over the years with the way that this conversation has been centered and with kind of the what i see as a lot of the um, people on the lefts um kind of not being on the field at all mm-hmm. um not having not not taking seriously the importance i think of this institution beyond the romantic um, Mm. vision of, quote, the library with a capital L, you know? I like the library, right? And it's like, yo, these are political institutions and all of them are sites of contestation for much broader fights that we on the left say we care deeply about And as I was just noticing more and more frenzy around the banned books, I tweeted last year, we're just, let's just get together and run a whole bunch of leftists to these library boards, right? Let's build power for governance. Let's not be here kind of like putting our fingers in the dike while the water is coming at us in big numbers and we're always like we're going to get drowned eventually why can't we be proactive around mm-hmm. these ideas and um so i was like you know i'm gonna do this like <laughs> in the next year <laughs> and starting in 2023 um and i i didn't really deeply think about what that was gonna entail but i just was like i'm just saying it and, you know, when you say things in public, which I forget a lot that it's public, I I don't I don't know if some of you are like this, too, but like that, you know, people are actually reading it. It's not your friggin diary or, right. you know, single train. I'm a person who thinks of, like my I'm in my head a lot. And what Twitter did for me was to just let me have a brain dump kind of situation. But I'm doing that like with in front of a lot of people. Right. And I <laughs> I sometimes don't make those connections in my own head. But anyway, um, so I somebody reached out to me in the new year, like early in January. And they were like, hey, I, I saw this tweet from you last year. I made a bookmark that I would come back around and reach out to you. What are you thinking about? And also, here's what I could do. Mm. which is my favorite kind of people like reach out you know it's not like hey what are you gonna do it's like hey I have an idea too and I have these ways of being able to like execute my idea would love to talk with you more and that was Dylan um, Flesh who ended up being one of our with me first steering members for For the People um, Leftist Library Project. So just wanted to give a little context to your listeners about, um, first of all, don't put your bullshit out on Twitter and then (laughs) (laughs) they'll come back to you. They will come back to you always uh, in whatever ways. And then, you know, also to show how the beginnings of a thing um, aren't necessarily always like deeply thought through, planned out. Mm. You know, we just kind of sometimes have to move um, 
given the context and um, the climate that we're in anyway. So backtracking to your original question. um, So for the people um, leftist library project, we basically have a very like very simple propositions. We uh, think that public libraries need our help. And by our, we mean specifically leftists. So public libraries need leftist help that they're currently and always have been targeted by reactionaries, but they're also targeted by liberals. And I think that is really important to underscore because libraries, public libraries in the United States are suffering death by a thousand cuts. And that has been going on for generations. Uh-huh. And a lot of those people who are proposing those cuts are for so-called progressive um, elected officials mm. um, and, and quote uh-huh. liberal constituencies, right? So that's something that we want to insert into the broader conversation. It's not like the reactionaries are the evil people who are trying to defund public goods. No, they're not alone. They have like totally willing partners on the quote unquote other side of the, you know, very short two party system kind of spectrum. Um, And then so we are proposing that the lefts need to protect, defend and expand public libraries. And why do we think that? We think that because we know that libraries are really among the last public spaces where people can simply be without having to purchase a good or service or spend any money at all. Um, Emily Drabinsky, who we had on our second event that we ran in March when we launched um, this year, um, Emily calls libraries public goods shared in common and distributed to everyone. Mm -hmm. And I love that. Mm -hmm. And like, where do we have that? under late stage capitalism in the United States, right? So because it's so unique of a thing that we have and because with all of the the issues that are attendant within all institutions, so I'm not, again, not to romanticize the library, that's not what this is about, but to say that the library is for me, the last of the public goods that exist that we don't have to ask people to dream about making. It exists. Mm. It is here. And if we lose it, we will not get it back for a very, very, very long time in this country. Why? Because the right has been so successful at expropriating, exploiting, divesting from, privatizing Mm. everything so that a generation of people could not, if you ask them today, to imagine an institution like a library, it mm. would be foreign to them. Mm. They wouldn't believe it. They would say it was unrealistic. They would say it was impossible. And so that means a lot to me because I spend a lot of time thinking about an abolitionist horizon and what it's going to take in terms of institutions for us to realize and get closer to that horizon. And this is one of the very few ones that exists now that we don't have to imagine, but that we have to strengthen and expand and uh, address the contradictions of um, rather than start from nothing and try to build from there. So that's a little bit about kind of the overview of FTP. We have a steering group that um, includes six people. And then we have 
wonderful volunteers that support in so many ways. Over 400 people have signed up to be data volunteers for us, helping us with a massive data project, which is the first of its kind, which I could talk about later. Um, and then I'm just going to say the final thing is that FTP's goals are really to recruit and train leftist, leftist board candidates and people, if, the, if they hear this before our deadline, we're taking cohort applications until November 15th. We are here to empower people on the left to self-organize and take action in support of their public libraries and to expand them. And then we're here to provide resources for library defenders on our website and other spaces. So that is kind of, that's a, in a nutshell, what we're up to and what we're trying to do. Yeah, oh, very elegant and like just motivating um, account of, of why mobilizing around libraries is in fact so important in and of mm -hmm. itself and also in this moment for the left. And and I really am so excited to talk about the the nitty gritty and the nuts and bolts of, of how this work is being done. Um, but maybe before we jump into that, I mean, yeah, I just kind of want to want to ask you both since you're here and, you know, we have such a interesting opportunity to really kind of hash this out. Like I feel very convinced that libraries represent an important problem for the left, uh, exactly in the ways you were just saying, Miriam, that, you know, they're the last sort of public good, but they also have been subject to this sort of decades long series of attacks and actual material divestment that they've been hollowed out in a way that is really representative of broader record of the last 30 or 40 years uh, in this country. And I guess I kind of want to just tie that back to, to Melissa's piece and, and ask you both, I mean, what, what is the sort of, I don't know, what, what are the, what is the sort of central dilemma do you think through which the left has kind of failed so far to mobilize mm. um, in a sophisticated way here? Because I feel like, I don't know, the, the pet theory I've been turning over in my head, um, but as someone who also ruminates too much, I'm so delightful to turn this into a conversation instead, is like, you know, it seems to me that the culture war framing that, you know, that is sort of the dominant media narrative or dominant public narrative here, you know, is really depoliticizing in the sense that culture war implies a separation between the cultural or symbolic domain and the material, you know, lived bread and butter world. And libraries, of course, are an important institution that remind us that those things aren't separable. Um, but I sometimes think like the opponents, the anti-library folks, you know, and the kind of just sort of you know, almost um, predictable extremism of, of their sort of moralized rhetoric and their targets and is sometimes depoliticizing or is used to depoliticize, like sort of from the kind of liberal center perspective that is much more interested in just uh, claiming that those people are stupid or ignorant or deficient or backwards mm -hmm. and therefore are not genuine opponents, are not really politically efficacious, and that it's better to sort of look down on them and make jokes about them or dunk on them on social media. But ultimately, that requires, because it's a symbolic battle, it requires no real effort on the part of anyone. And that, you know, that sort of center kind of... Um, you know, refusal to act has a kind of depoliticizing 
uh, almost like ripple effect on the actual left. But then I also wonder if part of the issue for the actual left has been that the culture war framing makes libraries seem so symbolic as if then there isn't anything materially at stake, as if censorship is just as simple as do you get to read this book or do you not get to read this book, as opposed to a library is a central public resource where people go, you know, to get access to public internet or, you know, go to get access or referral to social services or to apply for jobs or to, I mean, Melissa, you talk about um, the long waiting list for a carpet cleaning mm-hmm. uh, device, you know, <laughs> at a at a Detroit library. So I'm just wondering, like, this is something that I just feel so plagued by these days. Like, what is it about these sorts of culture war framings that has unfortunately kind of demobilized? Uh, you know, is is that it? Is it is it something about the kind of false separation of of culture from from bread and butter political needs? And and are libraries then really maybe kind of like one of the the best counterpoints that we could mobilize? I have like 8 million thoughts. I'm going to try to keep them (laughs) somewhat brief. Yeah. I mean, this is just like a huge conversation. And I feel like very rarely this is the entry point into it. The culture war, symbolic sort of, I'm here to defend this copy of Mouse. Right. Way of this being positioned neatly forecloses a lot of the actual political opportunities that are in this fight. I've talked to Emily Dravinsky several times over the course of this year, you know, she was coming into the American Library Association as president in the midst of all of this. And, you know, long before she even assumed the office officially um, became a punching bag on the right. And that was sort of wake up call for me in terms of my own persistent romanticizations of libraries. Um, I was really shocked and disappointed to not see sort of more of the institutional parts of librarianship not come out and support her. Like, to be honest, like, I don't think the ALA has done a great job of supporting her in public. Um, That's just my personal opinion. But when I talk to individual library workers, they are very clear on the fact that the reason that Emily Drabinsky has become a right wing um, scapegoat is because it's not just because of libraries. It's because she positions the libraries as this kind of opportunity on the left, that this is a site of struggle, that this is about material needs. You know, she was the one who brought up the carpet cleaner and it's so real. Like um, one of the things she said to me is that libraries can meet the needs of the public. They can do what we want the state to do, which is to care for the public, Mm -hmm. to provide public resources that are distributed equitably in the community. But then when the fight around this is all defined around the book, um, this is what she said. If we limit our analysis to just the problem of censorship, then the solution can only be to keep that book on the shelf. And that is not enough. And in fact, I think sometimes that's the easiest part. But I understand why it's attractive, uh, especially to liberals, because then they aren't indicted in all the ways that they have Mm. been killing libraries by a thousand cuts. Mm. They don't have to answer for the fact that they don't understand what library governance looks like. I mean, I didn't understand what library governance looks like until I started talking to library workers and going to library board meetings. And the, the ones that I chose to focus on were in a liberal community. So I went to the suburb of Detroit that's sort of historically known as like its gay suburb or its gayborhood. And, you know, most of the library workers who were really engaged in the stuff at that community library uh, in Ferndale were queer or trans or both. They, you know, were coming to this with a very 
of the moment understanding of free speech that was really deeply nuanced. Um, they had internal conversations, as many library workers have, about do we have to let Nazis hang out at the library? <laughs> do we have to let far right groups rent rooms from us? Like, you know, are we a content neutral institution um, or do we have a political voice that says if we give space to these groups, we are endangering others who we also have a responsibility to? And so that was that was a huge wake up call for me in this reporting. It was like seeing these sort of moments where the romance of what libraries are, as Marianne put it so well, mm-hmm. um, run up against the actual conflicts that are happening and opportunities to get into them. You know, this town um, hadn't had any threats of book bans when I first started reporting on them, but the library workers knew it was coming and started organizing ahead of them. And the vehicle through which they were organizing was a union. And let me tell you, did their nice liberal ally uh, library board not like that <laughs> and refuse to recognize the union and are still, you know, I wouldn't say they're not bargaining in good faith, but like they're very resistant to the idea that they aren't all just friends um. who like love books or something. And that like there's like library workers who are like literally on the front lines when far right and Christian right groups come in and harass them and they don't feel like the library board has their back. And it it was just like so obvious to me what the point of intervention is, which is like, well, who's on the library board? Like if the library boards are full of people who are like fine to let things get cut, fine to sort of turn their back on the library workers when they need them, but just like love books, like how insufficient mm. that is. Mm. I'm thinking a lot about kind of, I've been, I've been arguing that the public library is probably the last U.S. institution where the word commoning makes any sense at all. And it's for that reason for me that public libraries are important sites of struggle for leftists. And that because public libraries, we've talked about our communal communal goods, that under capitalism, these goods are always at risk of being privatized or plundered or extracted. And this, this, is precisely why they are under attack by the reactionary right wing. Um, I feel like without that being the center, the free speech stuff mm. is just, that is just not it. Mm. That's not why they are the center spite for the right. The right has a larger project, y'all, that has been a long-term investment. And we aren't in the same way so explicitly clear about that um you know we on the left at least i thought that our goal in part was to refuse refuse kind of like the forced conversion of life forms into market relations that that was a a central value that we do not want a commodified public library right and more importantly that our goal should be to encourage and expand democratic Uh, public control over all our institutions. Like these are things that I think we somehow, if you talk to people on the left, like people agree with, but we aren't making it central to our fight and constantly talking about it in the same way that the right is committed to having an ideological and material struggle against these institutions. And for me, um, I've been thinking a lot. Um, Brett Story, who I really appreciate a lot, who's an abolitionist thinker and filmmaker, um, and did uh, 12 Landscapes in Prison Land. I think it's the name of the film. I have to find the exact uh, thing. I'm sure we can find it and put a link for people. Um, she 
I, I heard her giving a talk a few years ago, and she mentioned this thing that has stuck with me all the way since. She said that a lot of us in this current moment, like we don't have a vocabulary or a grammar for the commons anymore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that means that what's been lost to us um, is the commons as a way of thinking about, she said, how we belong to each other. And that to me was like, mm-hmm. yes, 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 yes. Because for me, interdependence, belonging to each other, all those things are such important, crucial planks in the left political project. And we don't know how to have that conversation in public anymore. We don't have that conversation in explicit terms in common anymore. And libraries, to me, can actually help us to rediscover a grammar for the commons. Hmm. And the fact that, and that's something we desperately need as we build towards, for me, an abolitionist horizon. So I feel very strongly that the the institutions, the institution of the public library, therefore, is just incredibly important to the broader, larger project on the left in this moment and moving forward. And that's in part why it's so essential for me, especially for young folks who did not grow up steeped in the ideas mm-hmm. of commoning or in the ideas of a grammar and a vocabulary for the commons and aren't steeped in and haven't grown up in a society where our interest is in pushing for an understanding of how we belong to each other. That claiming that space back for this is going to help develop the muscles we need for demands for more public institutions, more public goods. It it gives us the grammar for understanding Medicare for all. It gives us mm. the vocabulary for making demands that are beyond individualistic ones and that tell us that we deserve to have public goods that are shared in common for everybody. Like, does that make sense? I, I maybe I feel like yes. maybe I'm not. Oh maybe. hell yeah, okay. <laughs> definitely. Okay, yeah. So that so that so to me, I want us to get to the crux of that as the because the the right understands this though. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. they they get it. It's why they fight so hard on public schools. That it's that's a big huge part of it right? To the years and years of cutting away, delegitimizing. Yes, it's also for the ideological reasons of being in some places a way for us to push for different ways of thinking about ourselves in the world and a rethinking of history and a teaching Mm -hmm. of new ways of being able to see the world. Yes, that's part of what the fight is. But if that were only it, we wouldn't have to be so worried in my opinion. Opinion, mm. Because there are other ways that we can disseminate information in this age, right? That's not it. It's that if we lose the publicness of education, we lose so much. Mm. We lose so, so much, right? Because mm-hmm. at its stands right now, yes, it's been privatized, but you can still send your kid to a public school anywhere in this country. And that kid could have come from anywhere. And you have a place for them to be for eight hours a day where they are mostly safe, even though we live in this time of mass shootings, schools are still one of the safest place for children to be in this country. 
on a day-to-day basis, their homes are much more dangerous than their schools are. So I think this is this is the crux of the fight. Mm. And I really would like people to think about it more deeply, talk about it in their own communities, mm. understand why it matters, why we must make the fight, um, why we must center our our struggles in this place um, in order to expand, grow, insist on more, 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 not less. Mm-hmm. Can I build something off the side of that really quickly? Oh, yeah. of course. So the the school's piece is what this reminded me of, um, what reminded me of this. You know, one of the buzzwords, both of the attacks on libraries, but also the attacks on schools is this idea of parental rights. Right. And, you know, part of what I've been trying to do is is let people more easily make the association between parental rights and the destruction of public good. (laughs) Parental rights is, you know, there's one way you can argue with the concept of parental rights. And, you know, I see parents do this around libraries, too. I'm the only one who gets to decide what books my child reads. Uh right like not you you can decide what books your child reads and i get to decide what books my child reads and the more exciting future forward inspirational brave position that you know librarianship takes is you decide what books you read including when you're a minor and you know we're not going to share checkout histories with people's parents because we understand what that might expose them to no we are not going to start limiting what books young people can take out based on what their parents say they can and cannot read. That is counter to this institution. But it's a lot easier, I think, particularly for liberals to sort of get into this, no, I'm the better parent or like fight it on that grounds because it's uh-huh. they perhaps are also challenged by the, this idea of young people having autonomy. And it's the same error I see around how this plays out in the public school fight, which is you know, there are groups, we've talked about them before on the show, like Alliance Defending Freedom and other Christian nationalist projects that came out of the homeschool movement, which is, you know, not a homeschool movement. It's a destroy public schools movement. But what it presents itself as is, oh, well, kids should have choices. Parents should have choices. They should be able to go to whatever school they want to go to. And they're getting more successful every year and every successive iteration of the Supreme Court of creating a system of education in this country where our public funding could be handed over to individual families to pay for their child's Christian nationalist homeschool education. Mm-hmm. That's the system that they want. Mm-hmm. They, You can't fight that by saying, oh, well, that's not a great educational program or not everyone's going to choose that. Like, the way to fight that is on this much bolder level of like, you cannot dismantle this institution. Like as Miriam said, like if we lose libraries, we're not going to get them back. If we lose public schools, we are not going to get them back. Not for a long time. And, and that's, that's sort of like the only intervention I have in this at this point, which is to just say like, don't believe the language the right is handing you mm-hmm. about what they're fighting on. Um, and this is going to require maybe some bravery and going out on a limb, particularly when it comes to children, then the left has been great at. Yes. I just want to say, add one thing to what Melissa said, which is absolutely that we are making the case, at least I am, that children are not your private property. Mm -hmm. And y'all, that is a fight on all sides because you have people (laughs) who think their children are their own personal Mm -hmm. private property and we are saying no 
actually, we believe in the village. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. We believe in the village. No, your kid is, I, I, I have no, I have no biological children, you know, but I own something. So that means I pay taxes that go towards your schooling of your children. And I'm happy that that's the case. I am thrilled that that's the case because I see your child as somebody who's the future of our society. And I believe in a society, right? So Mm -hmm. there you go at the crux of this again. So go ahead, Jules. Sorry to interrupt No, no, not at all. I mean, I just, (laughs) part of what I'm hearing both of you saying that really just clicked in for me, right, is sure, let's not totally take at face value the language that the right uses, but also let's not just leave it at that because I feel like that's been like, oh, well, when the right talks about school choice, it's totally in bad faith and they're, and they're perverting the word choice. Okay, sure. What What is the leftist politics of a different form of choice, right? The idea of young people being able to choose what books they read when they go to the library, right? Not this sort of privatized, private property, Christian uh, nationalist version of choice, but, but the left is not offering its own affirmative, positive concepts, you know, uh, different kinds of collective intention, different kinds of, you know, yeah, communal forms of redistribution or ownership, you know, there, there's a sort of, I feel like part of what I'm hearing and, and part of what's really landing for me is just how, how much has been given up, as you were saying, Miriam, uh, and, and, and therefore how little the left is proposing on its own terms. And maybe it just comes back to that kind of perennial, notion of politicking as struggle, you know, if the left is not forwarding its own vision, a more democratic or an abolitionist and a public vision of these kinds of concepts, then it can't struggle. It cannot genuinely struggle against the right wing versions and also, frankly, the liberal versions, which would like us to simply go back to a a sort of abstract romance and ignore uh, the last 40 or 50 years of the destruction of the public and just cling to a kind of dictionary definition of censorship and reading and literacy and not actually examine their material context. And it just, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you can hear my voice. I just feel very charged up by, by, um, by, by seeing all of these connections between what both of you are saying. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Sorry, be one more thing I would love to jump in on here is that that also I'm so resonating, Jules, with what you said about the affirmative, uh, the affirmative case that ought to be made that we actually have the language and the the fucking analysis that all these (laughs) leftists are constantly bandying about. We Hmm. have it. We have it. We're articulating it here Mm -hmm. right now in this space. And I think it's convincing to large swaths of people. So we're not in a defensive mode here, actually. And this is one of like mm. my, I, I constantly feel the sense from people of the onslaught and the overwhelm and, and those are real and those are true, but we also have built some stuff up over the generations. We have a language, we have supposedly, I think, values. Why aren't we leaning truly into those, right? Libraries, public libraries in particular, are social infrastructure. You all on this show consistently talk about the social infrastructure needed for public health, okay? The library is a parallel set of social infrastructure 
which means that the actual physical spaces of these of these uh, 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 institutions, the actual organizations shape the way people interact with each other. Think mm. for a moment of any public spaces or any spaces we have in this country, public or private, where people across class meet up regularly. Mm-hmm. You go into a library, a middle-class family in there with their child for story hour and a houseless person sitting there for a cooling station or a... In where, what part of the United States is that shit going on in? Somebody mentioned it. Somebody tell me if it exists. Uh-huh. If somebody who's listening to this comes up with that space, I'm giving you $100 for it. <laughs> okay? Because <laughs> it doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. It doesn't exist anymore. It is, it, you know, what Melissa pointed out in, in her article, all the things about the free access to book and cultural materials. But it also offers you all. I, I don't know if you had this experience before. My aunt, when she before she passed away, God rest her soul, spent so many hours at her local library. Why? For companionship. Mm-hmm. Because she had other older adults there who would meet up and they would have crochet hour. They would have book club meeting. They would meet up to exchange recipes. Some of us were latchkey kids in Gen X. Do you know who were our best friends? Our local librarians, because we all went Mm -hmm. from school to the library. And I'm sorry to say, but it's true. They were our de facto childcare workers for our parents who couldn't afford those hours for us to go to a special childcare center. Right. Mm -hmm. My mother learned English at the local library. My mother did not come to this country speaking English. She took ESL classes at the library. That's how she learned how to speak the language. Okay. Like I I want people to understand you don't have to have an imagination to think about creating Mm. this institution. It exists now. Mm -hmm. Fight for it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. No, and I really appreciate so much just everything that we've gone through so far. Like I, I don't, I didn't realize how much I had really been like yearning to have this conversation. Like this is just, the, the thing that is so, I think, frustrating is that oftentimes we are sort of in a position where, you know, like the left approaches problems reactively. Right. Um, and that is like sort of used as this almost like prefigurative way of foreclosing on certain possibilities. And part of this is is just in response to like the repressive um, social and political structure that that we live under. Part of this is how things um, within capitalism are structured. But I think especially, you know, the ways that libraries exist as as a commons, right, which as you're pointing out, Miriam, it, it is so rare to think of a space like this that exists. And it's vanishing sort of before our eyes. It's some it's something that is also not a foregone conclusion by any means. It's a site of contestation because it's a really important site of contestation. And it's something that, you know, we need to proactively get in on, I think, as a left. There, you know, are so many threads of what we've been talking about today that are just like ringing 
a bell in the back of my head that's making me think of the like 1933 book by Wilhelm Reich, The Mass Psychology of Fascism, where he talks about like part of the fascist project is to make every family into a proxy for the nation, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what we're really talking about in terms of like privatization. It's not just like that privatization is bad because it means someone makes a buck, right? What we're talking about is, is the sort of sequestering of different aspects of public life and the declaration of those things are no longer in the commons, right? And what's ultimately going on, whether we're talking about public schools or libraries or even just municipal budgets in general and kind of municipal infrastructure, whether that's like uh, trash services or other things like, you know, um, maintaining parks or building parks in the first mm -hmm. place, designating land as parks, things like that. You know, the right sees these as a space of contestation and struggle, sort of presenting these opportunities to further privatize life to further, you know, reinforce the idea that each family unit is a nation and that child is not only the property, but the future and the product, the commodity, like the GDP of every family is the child. And this is the kind of view of um, sort of families as they exist as, as a very small but numerous political unit within the fascist state. And this is something that you know, Reich's looking at things like 1932 speeches made by Hitler and the ways that people, um, you know, in Germany at the time are sort of using um, whether it's sexual repression or a kind of call to preserve the sort of GDP and, and growth and property of the state of Germany through preservation of children, right? Like, ultimately, this is a, a project also of statecraft and of statecraft that we can't sit out of, right? Um, it's an important site of contestation and intervention because it represents like a huge affront to this idea that each family is its own little nation and that children belong to each family and that each family has a kind of duty to the national project to be in competition with all the other families, right? And the idea of a space like this being able to contain whatever books they want, but even beyond that, being able to generously and bountifully, you know, fund these institutions to provide a more robust commons in the community, like that idea in and of itself is a, a huge affront to fascist uh, political economic ideology, like at its core. And that's why mm. I think it's so important to kind of really drill down, like, what do we actually really mean when we talk about censorship and privatization, right? Like we're talking about the struggle for political and social life at the end of the day. Yeah. To add something to that too, like on the one hand, the public library represents this like radical, but shouldn't be commitment to the idea of the commons, but within it, there's competing and differing ideas of what that means. And that is also great. Like I remember from some of the library workers I talked to, but also others that, you know, didn't make it into the, to the story. So this isn't just specific to, to Ferndale. Um, you know, there's this sort of trope of like, oh, gosh, the librarians didn't sign up to run a homeless shelter or, oh, gosh, the librarians didn't sign up to be a safe injection site. You know, like this kind of knee jerk, pseudo compassionate sometimes response to what it is to see houseless people and people who use drugs in a public space um, that people, you know, feel they have a right not to see those things or to share space with folks who are houseless or who use drugs. 
And there's, there's actually like multiple ways that you could respond to that, right? Like, yeah, wouldn't it be great if there were resources to meet those people's needs in different ways so that somebody doesn't have to worry about running the circulation desk and getting out the Narcan? Like, yeah, that would be great if everything were more resourced. But the answer to this isn't like, well, we have to get those people out of this space because it's only our space. That's counter to what the space is. And I think like protect, like there are ways that we have been challenged around protecting the commons of the libraries outside the rubric of the book banning and free speech stuff that for me sometimes are really clarifying. Just like, well, what, what are, what are we defending when we're defending this space? And it is that, as Miriam said, and as you said, Beatrice, it's like, this is the one place where everybody equally can enjoy the same public good. Mm. And that is a, that is something that like we can't take for granted that people are on board with that and and something to defend because we already as Miriam said we have it um and and we can have much more interesting fights about what that looks like to live together in common when we don't have to like fight for its existence um unfortunately we have to do both Mm -hmm. but it does feel like a, a useful exercise i mean like it's it's precisely because it's so worth fighting for it also feels like i don't know just meant just in my head trying to remember the last time I feel like I was talking about successes <laughs> and mobilization um in in leftist projects uh yeah so I, I'm kind of curious like you know I'd love to hear uh Miriam like you know both about some of this the actual tactics and projects you know we alluded to some of them at the top of the show but just actually some of the things that you know FTP is working on in some of the ways it is mobilizing people and and maybe one thing i'm super curious about um in talking about that is actually to get your sense of like yeah what does seem to persuade or motivate people to you know to actually participate i mean obviously i think there's just a lot of people who want to get involved and want to get active and want to be a part of this work anyways um but but just sort of curious as as you know as yeah as ftp is sort of getting to work uh and actually you know organizing and 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 figuring out different ways to to mobilize the left um, in in protection of and an expansion of public libraries, yeah. What are some of the some of the nitty gritties, and what are some of the interesting lessons or experiences that that you're a part of there? Yes, um, thank you for that, Jules. Um, I think, as with everything that I've always ever done in my life, um, in any formation and organizing work that I've been part of, I'm I'm constantly taken aback about how um, I don't know. You would think that people, it, it makes logical sense to think, you know, well, people um, love the library, right? They, they'll, they'll say, I love the library. I love my library, you know, whatever. But that doesn't, uh, that doesn't translate to people taking any action at all. Mm-hmm. Anything, you know, it's just like uh, it, it, it gets uh, left into a, a, a sentimentality and the feelings, but not concrete like what are you actually going to do to protect uh expand uh get involved in a real way where the library is in the wrong direction right like how how are you going to get involved in like actual governance and um stuff and part of that is that most people don't even know that there is such a thing as a library board Mm. there's a lack of information around Mm. Do people even know how their libraries get funded? Do they think it's from the federal government? Because it's not, right? Like, do, do they think, like, how do how do these institutions actually work? So there's a lot of um, need for kind of like 
basic 101 mm. stuff, which always takes up so much of the time <laughs> in mm-hmm. everything that you end up doing is like the constant need for education around some just very basic stuff, which we have hit up the, you know, we've come to the wall on right now, which is that, you know, we're going to have to step back and offer kind of understanding your library one one sessions mm. in 2024 um, because it, it's clear to us um, how few people actually know anything about how libraries work. So that was, um, I shouldn't have been a surprise to me at all because of course that's true, right? And it's mm-hmm. not, and people aren't to blame for that. Uh, we don't know how anything works in this country um, on purpose. Mm-hmm. So So that's been a thing. And so now we're really taking a step back and we're going to create kind of a basic hour long um, session that will be recorded that people will be able to use in their communities um, to help people understand that landscape, like how libraries actually work, how they're funded, um, how they're governed, um, you know, things like that. So that's one thing that we're really going to be focused on um, in the next few weeks. Um, The second thing is even when you inform people that they can do something like run for a seat or seek appointment for a seat, there's a gap between people knowing that information, perhaps even people being offered a way into that. And then people actually choosing to take it on as a project. That gap between, I didn't know this existed. Oh, now I know it exists. Oh, and there's this place where I can be part of a cohort team of people that are looking to do this, but I actually have to do this, Hmm. right? And that that area of the push to actually make the leap is the crux of the difficulty of organizing people. Um, and we're in that mode right now, which is getting people to move from, yeah, that's a good idea to, no, I, I can do that to, I will do that. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so we're, we're working on that right now with our first cohort. We're looking to have about 30 people, um, participate in that. We're also through our website, we offer people lots of other ways to be involved if they don't want to be involved in governance and, um, uh, you know, power uh, at the at that level of, you know, taking over the boards. Mm-hmm. Um, there are so many other ways that they can get involved. So I encourage people to have a look there. And I think people might be interested in some of the lower lifts. Um, we really want people to start attending their local library board meetings. We have a really cool thing that's a library board watcher. Um, thing that we made that's uh, uh, basically a uh, a way to think about it. Like we do court watching. We want people mm. to do board watching and you can have a bingo card. And, you know, we're trying to make things fun, accessible for people to be able to use, give them a central place to go at librariesforthepeople.org to access that, share the information in their communities. We have, uh, we've created like fun stickers and and one page handouts and things that people can post in their communities share uh we did a libraries and lemonade stand project this summer we encourage people to use the material have a lemonade stand to talk with their neighbors about their local public libraries we're using by all means every means we know about how to organize people we've been trying to kind of put into place and have layers of ways that people can 
connect to this. But in the end, it's just going to be a slog. Mm-hmm. It's just going to be a slog. We are a, I mentioned that you mentioned at the beginning, we're decentralized. We are autonomous. We are not linked to any organizations. We have no money. We're raising none, really, you know, except for stuff to cover costs for access for our virtual um, sessions so we can have ASL, ASL and, and live captioning. That's basically what we're doing. So we're not bound to uh, have to like put in so much energy to keep ourselves going, but we're also a time-limited project. We've given ourselves a five-year window to with our goals in mind of having X number of people that we help to either get appointed or to elect to these school boards. And that's what we're focusing on like a laser um, is to reach that particular goal and a couple of other goals we've set for ourselves. So we don't see ourselves as like a, a space in perpetuity. We really want to be an intervention and and a galvanizing force. And we'd love it if a whole bunch of other people start their own for the people if they want to, they in their communities in the ways that they see fit based on their hyperlocal context. We are a national focused group because frankly, it doesn't exist mm-hmm. at this point. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we are we yeah. are trying to catalyze that, but that's it. We're not, we're not, and we're also not proprietary. Please use the materials we've made that they're for you to use and download and adapt, more importantly, for your context. We don't purport to know everything that everybody needs, but we are thinking and trying to anticipate what we think is needed. We also are open to you letting us know what you may need email us. And if you, if you come up with something that also more importantly, can you make shit, Uh you know, can you do stuff? (laughs) Please make your offerings, come to the table and be like, I think this could be great. Great. Go for it. Like we are literally not gatekeeping anything. We want you to do your thing. So that that's, that's a little bit about that. Thank you so much for that, Miriam. I also wanted to shout out uh, the second group that was part of the October 5th teach-in um, that was uh, the Hennepin County Library Patrons Union, because yes. to speak to um, you know the point that we kind of made a little bit earlier when we were talking about you know libraries being this place of access to public space, like that point of access is also a point of struggle too. And they, in particular, um, this is up in Twin Cities, like Minneapolis, um, you know, Minnesota area, the fight that they've been engaged in has been very different than the fight that the folks in Louisiana were engaged in. And I think that's what is really fantastic about this project is that it also creates a kind of container for these two contexts to come together and not be, you know, framed as sort of competing uh, library projects, right? Because the point is a kind of broad coalitional collaborative toehold almost, as SPK would say, like, this is the kind of toehold that we need. It won't in and of itself produce the kind of revolutionary results that we want, but it gives people an entry point from so many different angles. You know, the folks in at the Hennepin County Library Patrons Union, who I, I so appreciated, they were all together in the room, masked at the event with masks, and they talked about the work that they had been doing around um, naloxone and the ways that folks were being essentially like 
given um, trespass citations and banned from the library for all sorts of things, targeting specifically black kids in mm. the library, trying to remove, you know, control sort of who the library is for and how this is not some sort of simple um, point of negotiation, but is more a kind of complex political economic dynamic that relates, you know, not just to the kind of um, structural racism that is a kind of obvious dynamic, but also to staffing and also to resources and these kind of choices and the fact that the library is one of these only spaces, right? And that, that rhetoric um, that Melissa named that sometimes you hear about like, well, the library is not supposed to be a homeless shelter, right? So part of it yes. is about sort of declaring like, no, these spaces are for everyone. And I think they did such a good job, you know, just in one year, just transformatively changing the relationship of their community to those spaces. I agree. And I also just think, you know, just last night we ran a criminalization 101 for information workers. And, you know, we are not again, we are we are wide eyed and of aware of the fact that these are not institutions out of time and space. Uh -huh. These are institutions that are you know, grounded in under capitalism in our oppressive fucking country. So all of the you know, what is it? What Morgan Besickis wrote years ago, you know, the reason it's so hard to up uproot oppression is because the very systems that um, we're fighting against live within us. But it's absolutely true that the very systems we're fighting against live within all our institutions, uh -huh. too. So we have to be vigilant. We have to, again, contestation, struggle, fight. All those things are not just words. They actually have a material impact if you actually take them seriously and, and wage the fight. So, yes, I love what the Hennepin County Patrons Union is doing. We should have patrons. You know, there are over nearly 10,000 library systems in the U.S. OK, that's oh. a lot. So that means like you have opportunities over and over again. And these library systems are just systems. They're not just all the libraries, right? There's more than that number by far of individual local libraries in this country. So if you are in a space, you can start your own patrons union. And you know what? The folks in Hennepin County, they are open to talking with you about how they did it themselves. Mm -hmm. This is why we did that session called How We Did It. We mm -hmm. wanted to give people a vision of how just people in their communities got together and they made something and they're making it work where they are for their local context. I put a tweet out and here we are. We're making this shit happen mm. against my will. No, just kidding. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a lot of stuff to do and I keep having more things to do. I don't I'm like, when am I going to be done? I you know, they a lot of people, my haters would like me to go away. So would I. I would also like me. To go away. <laughs> it's it's like a. An excess of creativity, I'll say, is the only problem with working in library spaces at this point. Like uh. the people that I've like, I have a lot of optimism because I feel like if you want to talk about people who like have creative ideas about how to work collaboratively, like not all library workers are like that, but I think a disproportionate number of them are. Um, and have their own ideas of like what organizing can look like in ways that make sense for their community. Like I just feel like there's a, a certain like the library workers in Ferndale wanted a way for the community to show up for them, anticipating harassment, anticipating attacks. Um, and they also needed a way to protect themselves. And they're like, oh, a union. That's exactly what a union does. Let's have right. a union. And as soon as they had something to go to the community with to say, like, support us doing this, people showed up. So I have a lot of optimism about that, too. Like library workers know the communities that they're situated in and 
like that's the only way I've been able to sort of piece together how libraries work. Cause like Miriam said, like they, they don't want us to know how these institutions work because mm. then that means we might build power within them. Mm. But the very fact that there are 10,000, you know, like it's actually. It's a lot of possibilities I, I, there. Yeah, exactly. And it also means that this struggle isn't going to be fought and won in one venue. And so it's like everything is open. Everything might be on the line, but it's also not this like, um, you know, it doesn't have the same kind of inherent risks and depoliticizing fears and anxieties that I think often come from these kinds of banner headline fights that are organized around one massive national institution or might involve, you know, at some point one national election or one Supreme Court case, right? This is where the kind of, you know, peculiar um, set of very, very, very local forms of politicking in the United States is a place where, you know, the left can, can really think about success and also experiment and can actually enact, yeah, you know, a democratic principle, which is that there isn't a one size fits all prescription here. I mean, that's part of what I think I, I hear both of you saying, right, is like, this is also a moment to, to really, you know, to try to demystify and then to actually take action in a way that is pretty immediate. And, uh, you know, you can kind of expect to see things play out in a, in a relatively reasonable period of time. I don't know. I just think this is like, this is really galvanizing. It is. And I, this is, I'm so glad that you have that sense too, Jules, because Mm. like, this is an opportunity, y'all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We can actually do this. Right. You don't need to, in order to run for a library board seat, you don't need a trillion dollars, right? right. You don't, you could do it on a hundred in some place. Mm. Like we, it is so accessible to us right now. Like why we, we all need to be flooding the zone, right? Like there, and it's such an opportunity for us to feel a sense of direct power. We are not, I'm sorry, I don't, I'm not going to say it because about 2024 (laughs) and the, and the the democratic (laughs) party or whatever, I'm just not going to be involved. Okay. But I, 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 you can be involved here. You can have a sense of agency that is actually, you can make an actual difference. It is possible to do here. You know, I mean, it's something if also just on a very, if for people who cannot run for something, whatever, a lot of the library boards now, they, they meet on virtual. Right. So you don't have to leave your house to watch the meeting and be engaged. You know, like I, I feel like there's, issues of access and other things like that you can find so many ways to be involved you don't have to it's not about protesting in the streets mainly it's not about like there are so you can get a library card you can get everybody in your direct circle to get library cards like there are so many ways of involvement there's a wonderful um zine that eric ruin out of just seeds put together uh, a few months ago called the people and the library and it's a small thing it's not even a book it's a zine that is uh reflections on grassroots efforts to preserve and expand the library in philadelphia years Mm. ago they, they threatened to close a whole bunch of public libraries in philadelphia the community came together and saved their libraries take that zine which I'll send a, I'll put a copy for B to put onto this uh, show notes so you can get it, read it, and then have a discussion with your friends. Uh-huh. Get them on Zoom and talk about like, oh my God, what did you learn from this? How might we even apply this to other things 
that we're doing that aren't library related? What are the lessons we are learning here about grassroots organizing? You, I mean, there's so much to, there's so many wonderful possibilities. And I feel all the time, I constantly just am in wonder over all the things that we can be doing um, to make our lives more livable, to make ourselves uh, more kind of legible to each other and to insist on a vision of the world that is our vision of the world, rather than constantly being afraid, cowering, worried, angry, whatever. I mean, all that's true too, but gosh, there are other, there are other things to do as well, you know? Absolutely. So I know, Maryam, that you have a hard out that is coming up. And so before we let you go uh, off to do a very important walking tour that we don't want to keep you from, um, just as a final point, I wonder if you wouldn't mind um, talking a little bit about the data project that Libraries for the People is doing right now, um, because I think in particular, this is a point where especially our listeners who, um, you know, do that, like this is a great way for people specifically, like I think coming from the death panel community um, to get involved. And then we'll, we'll keep going after we say goodbye um, and we'll miss you. But before you run, I just want to make sure that we get a chance to talk about this. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, yes. So again, thank you for having me and for giving me a chance to talk about libraries, which you can tell I'm passionate about, I think. Right. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so much so that I went back to school in my 50s to get a library science degree. So, you know, <laughs> how that goes too. Um, but anyway, so I um, so part of our I mentioned to you before Dylan, who is the person who reached out to me in January. Um, Dylan is a person who is um, holding down our data project. And we figured out pretty quickly that there were no there was no data or information pre-existing that maps out all of the um, library board seats that are available in the country. So therefore, it's not shocking that people, A, don't know their are library boards, but B, if they wanted to get involved, how would they be able to figure that out? They'd have to go individually to all of these 10,000 library systems to get that information themselves. That makes no sense. So we started on this project uh, spearheaded by Dylan to find all of the library boards in the country figure out um, which of the library board seats are elected versus which are appointed. And what we have is an opportunity for people to connect and volunteers have been taking batches of 25 to 100 libraries and contacting them individually to find out, going to find out if there's a website, getting that website, figuring out from the website what they say about the library board seats in their community, getting that information down, deciding and figuring out whether or not they say that they're an appointed system or a elected system, finding out who appoints, if it's an appointing system. So we are 75% of the way done with that data project, that first phase. Um, we have all the batches currently checked out. However, we have deadlines for when volunteers need to get batches back to us. And when those deadlines pass, the batches go back into the system and get reassigned to new volunteers. So we're always looking for new data volunteers who will be able to help us. There will also be a phase two of this project. So we're looking for volunteers for phase two. They can find more information about it on our website. Um, we have found so far, just I can let folks, listeners know, surprisingly, 
We had initially thought it would maybe be 50-50, a 50 appointed seat, 50% of the boards having appointed seats and 50% perhaps being elected. We're finding that actually it's 75% appointed and 25% elected. We're also finding that many states either are all mostly or entirely appointed, no Mm -hmm. election at all. So doesn't that tell us again a thought about maybe we need to be, in some cases, pushing for democratic control of these particular institutions. You know what I mean? So there's a potential here for more fights in the future that are about why are you just doing appointments? Mm-hmm. Like What is going on here and who's getting appointed to these seats? Right. Um, depending on who the municipality, the, what the municipality is that's making the appointments. Um, so anyway, we are that we're learning things from the data. We are planning to make this data available to run for something as one space so that when you go to their website and you plug in, I want to run for something and you're, let's say in this case, under 40, um, it'll come up with the available library board seats as well as all the other information that you already can get from their site. And then we're looking for other spaces as well that might want the data so that they can also share with their constituents. I've been having lots of one-on-one meetings with people in library land. I've been having one-on-one meetings with people that are doing more general national organizing around various issues, including school boards um, and other things like that, which are just the natural part of organizing. And people keep saying, you know, we didn't know that there were board seats, but also amazing that there will be data mm-hmm. on that. So anyway, folks who are interested can definitely go to our website, sign up, uh, we are well, we welcome everybody. And just to last thing I want to say before I head out, um, I just want to also again um, point out how much of an opportunity we have in this moment, how much of an opportunity we have, not just in this realm, but in so many other spaces. And that it is so incredibly important not to feel a sense of foreclosed foreclosed dreaming. We don't just dream individually, we dream collectively. And that is incredibly important for a leftist project. And um, I really want all of us to not be so overwhelmed by the horrors that we're dealing with. Right now, we are dealing with a full-on genocide in Palestine. And it can be, it is seductive as hell to just be like, fuck it all. Mm -hmm. This is not worth it. There is nothing we can do. We are 100% powerless. The world, you know what? What if all of that is true? What if all of that is true and you still have to live tomorrow? That means you have a choice to make about the actions you choose to take. And whether or not those actions yield some sort of immediate result, we can only control what we do how we do it, with what intent we offer it, and we can put it out into the world and see whether eventually it will matter. So I hope people take that with them and keep pushing, keep working, keep doing what we all can. We have to push to belong to each other, um, as Brett mentioned kind of early on, and we have to push back on this ethic of you're on your own. We have to constantly be pushing for we're in this together. And I think the pandemic has really, to me, shown us the importance and the revolutionary importance and power of saying, no, we're in this together. We're in this together. I'm going right now to do some tours of a of a 
of an exhibition that I or co uh, that I curated uh, called Return to Sender. It's about prison and censorship prison as censorship. And our last day uh, of the exhibition being open is tomorrow. Um, but um, so you, when you hear this, the exhibition will have closed. But the thing that I've been really, really wanting people to sit with is a, 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 a insistence that we're in this together, that these things are not separate from each other, that everything is happening all at once, all at the same time. And so that's actually empowering. It gives us an opportunity to have influence. Don't be crushed by the weight of the world. So I just want to say that my deep appreciation to you all here at Deaf Panel. Thank you, Melissa, for your work. You give me so much of a sense of uh, agency and hope. So thank you all. Thank you. Oh, thank oh, you, Miriam. Thank you. So I right. appreciate it. Thank you so much for taking the time. We'll let you go. Um, thank you. But we'll wish you were here for this next part because we know you'd be here for it. So I can't wait to hear this like post, you yes. know, when it uh, when comes out. I'm exactly. To hear about it. Thank All you. right. Take care, y'all. Bye. Bye. Uh, um, just uh, feeling so revitalized right now. And seriously. I wanted to make sure, though, that, you know, we got a chance to talk about that because Phil and Abby in particular and probably any of Phil and Abby's colleagues will tell you how the kind of fantasy of what data actually exists and how accessible mm. it is is actually very different than the reality. And the reality is exactly what, you know, Libraries for the People is actually trying to address here, you know, that like so many times we've been like, hey, Phil, how's your week going? And he's like, well, I'm just chasing down Medicaid data and it is taking yeah. hours and hours and hours. So I wanted to make sure that we got like specifically a chance to talk about that project and their request for help there, because I know that there are a lot of people who are like Phil and Abby's colleagues who listen to this show who have a lot of experience um, who do this every day in the function of their job and who may mm. be looking for a way to use their skills towards something that aligns with their political goals. But I also wanted to make sure that we got a chance to talk about this beautiful synthesis and historical analysis in your piece, Melissa, which um, focuses also on this moment and libraries as a site of struggle how this is part of a kind of resurgent red and lavender scare. And this is a point I think you make masterfully in your piece in TNR in September. So do you mind, for folks who haven't read it, just sort of setting up what I'm talking about here and how you see this as part of a kind of resurgent McCarthyism, a resurgent anti-communist political rhetoric that kind of forces people to put themselves in a position of distancing. I mean, we kind of referenced this a little bit when we were talking about the ALA um, and Emily Drabinsky and kind of the, the lack of full-throated support that we would have loved to see in that instance. But do you mind sort of contextualizing what your actual sort of broader point is there about basically the relationship of everything that we've been talking about to the fascist project. Yeah, absolutely. I want to put in a brief shout out for the data project also, because I did a little bit of work on it. If you love PDFs, this is this is the <laughs> contribution for you to the library movement. There's so much data that is just sitting there on the open web, even that's just badly organized that will show you how these libraries work. And I was just like, oh, okay, this is an actual skill that I have in my day job doing research that matters here. So it felt really good to get to do it. Um, you know, there's 
the the red scare component of what's going on with the attack on libraries certainly doesn't begin and end with Emily Drabinsky, but I'll, I'm going to start with her because I feel like um, her experience coming into leadership at the ALA, like made this unignorable. Um, like, I am sure that this is a longstanding dynamic within librarianship. Like the left has a lot of work to do within libraries. That doesn't mean like libraries are all on the left. Um, there's quite the opposite. And there's also, I think, this tension within librarianship of, you know, being a space for everybody somehow being compromised by having politics yourself. Uh Like this fear that like, well, this won't be a true space for everyone if we somehow politically take a stance on it's good to have a free space for everyone. It gets very twisted in a way um, that the right is very good at twisting it when they'll say, okay, if you all believe in a free space for everyone with all ideas represented, then like, why won't you let Kirk Cameron come to your library and read creationist fables for children? it's it's like a great wedge to sort of drive librarianship apart, this question of like, how political can you be? And so there was some, when, when Emily Drabinsky was elected and many library workers told me this, they specifically voted for her for to assume the ALA presidency because she supported library workers as workers. That was kind of how this started. You know, she's a labor organizer. She sees libraries as a labor issue. And this was before all of the far right attacks on libraries, um, Mm -hmm. but absolutely connected to them because I think what the far right was able to do and people like Christopher Rufo were like incredibly upfront about this was to seize on her as this kind of scapegoat um, because she publicly identified as a Marxist and also as a lesbian. And I do think that there's, you know, those words when wielded by those groups who have access to things like a tweet that can show up on Fox News three hours later, Mm -hmm. scapegoating somebody, leading to harassment and abuse of that person, leading communities to sort of feel like, do I have to show up for this person or should I distance myself from this person? Because what if I get pulled into this fight? Um, Those were still very powerful words to, to use against not just Emily, but I think, you know, libraries as a whole, as a system, as an institution. And the right will also hide behind this. These aren't supposed to be political places. These are supposed to be for everybody. But of course, we know they don't mean that either. <laughs> but it's this like smoke screen around this entire conversation of like, you're for everybody's politics, but you can't have politics yourself. Um, but I would hope everything we said earlier, like kind of gives lie to that. Like, no, like believing in what this institution does, this radical proposal that everybody should have access to this level of whether it's companionship and crocheting, whether it's a place to come out of the heat or the cold um, or a place to have your book group, a place to drop your kids off after school and know they're going to be safe. Like that is an opportunity that should be available to everyone. Like, I don't know how you separate politics from that proposition. Like uh, there's a part of me that's like, if you really believe that aren't all library workers, Marxists, I don't know, but like, it's, this is so, (laughs) (laughs) it's so at the heart of it. And also I think there's a lot of like resistance to like confronting this. And so, you know, what I admire about Emily is at no point was she like, I'm not a lesbian or I'm not a Marxist, right? Like she didn't say like, Oh, I know there's a really scary things, but I don't want you to be scared of me. Like those are who she is. It's part of her identity. And she was actually completely, you know, horrified at the way that she said it was used as sort of a bludgeon against other library workers. So, you know, as one example, that Montana um, has like a state library oversight body that in a theatrical move that meant absolutely nothing. But, you know, 
was a statement of politics and another form of scapegoating, said that they were going to dissociate the Montana um, Library Association from the ALA. And they cited Emily specifically. Um, they you know, cited her being a Marxist and a lesbian. And I mean, as much as that was about Emily and sort of putting Emily in her place, I think it was also about disciplining the ALA um, and also disciplining the library workers of Montana. Right. I mean, like, what is it to hear that in your own home state? And and so that like the stance that they took, this is the, the Montana Library Board that wanted to dissociate from the ALA. They said our oath of office and resulting duty to the Constitution forbids association with an organization led by a Marxist. And it's like, did you guys even ever pay attention that much to the ALA's politics till right now? Or was it just useful for you to seize on? somebody who is openly expressing their politics and a politics that's like completely in alignment with this institution, in my opinion. So it's, it's like this dance, I think, that's still playing out because it's very easy to say like, oh, no, that doesn't matter. That's irrelevant. I'm just as good a librarian as anybody who isn't a Marxist or, or a lesbian. And that wasn't the response that I was seeing from the library workers who supported Emily. And they kind of did their own organizing, put out their own statements when the ALA and the Montana Library Association statements, I think, were deficient and didn't name this dynamic. But like going after somebody for being a Marxist is a Red Scare revival. Going after somebody um, for being a lesbian, as much as we live in this fantasy of acceptance and, you know, same sex marriage fixed everything like. That's a very powerful thing, especially in concert um, with her Marxist politics. The Red Scare was a lavender scare. They're they're very inseparable in some ways. And I found this horrifying quote from McCarthy, um, who, when he was getting bothered by reporters about his um, House Un-American Committee's activities, he said to them, if you want to be against McCarthy boys, you've got to be either a communist or a cocksucker. Like there's a certain poetic unity and horror in this. And I think. I, I, I don't know, like, I still don't really know how best to to respond to it, because part of me wants to say, like, aren't we past this? Haven't we done this? Isn't this our history? Like, don't we know where this goes? But if the last few years have taught me anything, it's like, no, even when we like, quote unquote, know better, this history actually has not worked itself out of its institutions. Still a lever that somebody can pull. And and what I would rather see and what I'm trying to embody in the way that I'm writing about this is like owning the these things as the goods of the library. So I'm just going to read a part of what I wrote. Um, libraries are a place where queer and trans kids might feel freer. Libraries are like a kind of social collider, a space intended for people to freely cross paths with ideas and others unlike themselves. Libraries are tools for getting people the things they need and want for free. And it's these truths that demand our defense. Those are harder truths maybe for some people to defend than the abstract idea of keeping a book on the shelf. But I feel like unless we defend those truths, we're still going to be on the the back foot. Mm, mm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh oh, I'm having that feeling where like there <laughs> might be another death panel episode uh, coming into existence <laughs> right now. Um, so, you know, maybe we should talk more about this at another time. But I just wanted to say. I'm so, I mean, I'm a, I'm a Melissa Gira Grant super fan. So no one's going to be surprised to hear me say this, but I just, I'm so glad you connected it to the Red Scare and the Lavender Scare. And I, I also have been thinking a lot about that time period lately. I mean, I think part of the reason why it's recurring is actually that it, it never ended. Uh, and I think that's because anti-communism and actually the kind of homophobia that it was built into anti-communism 
was a bipartisan political project, ultimately. Mm-hmm. And, you know, kind of going back and looking at the the homophile organizing around the lavender scale and the civil service in Washington, D.C. in the 60s. I mean, this is also about the kind of liberal triumphalism about how we how we defeated the lavender scare, which like we didn't. Um, But it was this like totally individualist lawsuit model of I need to get my job back. It wasn't um, it was precisely the respectability politics of no, I'm actually a really good IRS worker or State Department worker who just happens to be gay, but I'm happy not to be gay at work, Um, you know, and I actually never was a communist and I don't even like communists either, right? It was the worst possible, quote unquote, triumph that could have happened. And so, you know, the, the actual structural political project that was homophobic anti-communism was never defeated. <laughs> um, just some people carved out, you know, a respectable path for their own neutrality. And so the dilemma was preserved and the, the dilemma has persisted. And so now it can antagonize, you know, so many different sectors, uh, including libraries, public schools, academia. I mean, I just think this is a real, this is a place where the left has lost a lot of ground as well. And I think people feel really overwhelmed. And And the one thing I was thinking as you were talking, Melissa, I was like, well, what, what does the cheapness of these accusations do, right? Again, there's this, the emergence of snarky, liberal, smug, looking down upon the right's cheapness of language, their use of Marxism, socialism, communism, their accusations of grooming and pedophilia, the absolute, um, you know, just sort of hackneyed destruction through overusage of the term woke. Uh, You know, all of these things, I I find the dominant reaction is to sneer and be like, oh, they're so dumb. No, they're not dumb. The, The thing that it does is it it, it inhibits solidarity. I mean, that's what mm-hmm. it's doing because it's saying mm-hmm. we're tar and feathering, you know, the head of the ALA. So you're not going to want to be associated with that person. We're tar and feathering people. So they become, you know, essentially on an informal blacklist. And we're going to make you do that dirty work for us by making you afraid to be in solidarity with them, make you afraid to be associated with them. And that is a really powerful political tactic straight out of the McCarthy playbook, right? Mm-hmm. And and it's one that was never defeated because it has continued as a central pillar of U.S. politics. I mean, you know, again, another episode, but obviously the way <laughs> that people's free speech and um, is being completely overrun if they support free Palestine and the impossibility mm-hmm. Like that, that, and verging on in some places in Europe now, it is like illegal to to just go out and protest on the premise that you know uh, Palestinian resistance is anti-colonial struggle. All of these kinds of things, right? Where the the liberal political institutions have always been illiberal, but this kind of homophobic anti-communism, I think, is something that you know I, that 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 we really have to deal with <laughs> because we're already dealing with it mm. in this loss of solidarity and in this and in this kind of self-censorship or just that feeling of like, you know, I don't want to get 200 emails like where people are going on weird long rants, throwing Mm -hmm. all this language at me. So actually 
maybe I won't um, make a public statement or, you know, actually, maybe I won't attend this protest or maybe I won't stick my neck out, you know, for this other person who's being tarred and feathered in the public sphere. I mean, I really think there's something so central here that actually gets mm-hmm. us to the material context of how homophobia, transphobia, and anti-blackness actually really work uh, in the so-called culture war sphere. So uh, it's mm-hmm. just like, there's so much going on there. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm glad you, you mentioned Palestine too, because I feel like you know, this was on my mind. This is towards the end of October. The Republicans finally have a Speaker of the House now, and I made the mistake of watching his acceptance speech. Oh, no. Um, I know, just parts of it, because um, he's a rabid Christian nationalist, former yeah. attorney. This dude's like in my wheelhouse. So I was like, I have to watch this. And like three sentences in, maybe not that many, but pretty early in, he went on a extended riff about how, you know, we are an anti- Marxist, anti-communist country. And I was like, what is this doing here? It was in 1962, in 1962, that that our national motto, in God we trust, was adorned above this rostrum. And if you look at the little uh, guide that they give uh, tourists and constituents who come and, and, and visit the house, if you turn in there to about page 14 in the middle of that guide, it tells you the history of this. And it says very simply, these words were placed here above us. This motto was placed here as a rebuke of the Cold War era philosophy of the Soviet Union. That philosophy was Marxism and communism, which begins with the premise that there is no God. This is a critical distinction that is also articulated in our nation's birth certificate. Like, why are you putting this here? And some of, I, and I made it a kind of like naive post about it on Blue Sky and some of the responses I got back was like, well, of course they say that. They don't mean anything. Like, mm. they just now and it's like right but why like we should not be lulled into this being normal now that we are hearing you know these denunciations of groups that on the one hand do not have the kind of political power that these these figures on the right invest them with but on the other hand they hold great power when it comes Mm -hmm. to pushing people away from them and and i I don't think the right response here is to say like whatever there's no marxists in congress (laughs) Right. It's like, no, like they're hitting on something. They're trying to pull us apart and they're labeling a scapegoat. And that is real. And that is happening no matter how much they believe in that person actually being a Marxist or a communist. It was never about that person actually being anything. It was about forcing you to renounce it, renounce it for yourself or others. And um, yeah, that's not symbolic, as you said. No, there's consequences for that. Yes. It's so important. And I mean, I feel like when people dismiss that kind of rhetoric as being like, well, oh, of course, you know, of course this, oh, of course that, and kind of downplay the significance of, for example, like really overt um, speech against communism as a kind of almost paramilitary, like, other state that the U.S. is at war with, literally sort of re-performing the Cold War with this abstract, you know, specter of the communist state within, right? Which is like a a whole sort of mindfuck to to look at from like a perspective of like sociology of disability in particular. But I feel like when that comes up, like fucking Irving Goffman is just screaming in his grave and scratching at the (laughs) fucking coffin to get out to be like, 
no, oh my God, like this speech matters. This is backstage becoming front stage speech. Like his uh. whole idea of dramaturgy, right? The the quote that everybody uh, says and nobody like stops to think about of all oh, the world is a stage, right? You know, we are actors, we're here to perform was about the idea of how speech and, and communication and interpersonal interactions, social relationships are governed by a series of sort of performances and agreements, right? Mm -hmm. And we have a kind of front and center uh, public performance that we're willing to sort of present to people. And that's an active state of sort of performance and negotiation with the world around you where you try and meet norms and, and match and sort of demonstrate that you're a member of society, right? And then you have the backstage performance, which is the private mm -hmm. self, the, the things that, you know, you say in the absence of public view, right? Like on and off the record kind of idea. And, you know, the, the, the ways that this like idea is used and abused and misread, like abound, but at, at the core of it, right? Like what it speaks to is that public speech is always a social reproductive action, mm. right? Mm -hmm. Speech of any kind whether that's being openly anti-communist in your acceptance of the appointment of Speaker of the House, <laughs> or it's a book where communism is in the title, right? Which was not <laughs> easy to do and get published, frankly, um, as opposed to what some people have thought. <laughs> um, it's, you know, fundamentally about a provocation, right? And in one hand, like, the provocation is that communism is not allowed, should not be on book titles, should not be published, should not be a book in a public library with the word communism in it, right? And the other hand is to force and, and, and sort of set opposing negotiations and propositions of no, communism is a word we should say and we can believe and build towards, you know? And, and that struggle, right, isn't just symbolic, right? Like it is a literal action mm -hmm. that we perform over and over on this show when we say, request health communism and a short history of trans misogyny at your public library, which you're saying like, you know, that the reproduction of speech, like whatever it is actually always matters, unfortunately. Mm. Right. Mm. Yeah. Quite Very unfortunately. There are times when I'm like, why did I put horror in the title of my book? I'm so fucking over it. And I'm grateful that I did because yes. every time someone says it with a smirk or with a like, Oh, well that's interesting. I'm like, okay, this book is doing some interesting work in the world, even when just other people say the title mm. and feel the need to reposition themselves around it. Mm. Um, it doesn't feel great, but you know, like that, it doesn't feel symbolic to me in those moments. These aren't just mm. words in those moments. And yeah, like, I think it's so comforting to be like, oh, well, whatever, you know, as you laid out tools, like this isn't just in our past. We never actually fully resolved this. We didn't deal with this. Um, the, the red scare and the lavender scare, we just sort of like held it at bay with respectability politics, um, at best it's, it's, I think it doesn't feel great to realize it's still with us. And I want to acknowledge that, but also we can't just say like, well, these are just words and we're just going to move on because those people aren't being sincere about their politics. They're just riling up their base or whatever they tell themselves they're doing. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, we have library workers whose work emails are getting foiled for the word communist Marxist. Social justice was one of the words that these the right are using to FOIA library workers emails. Mm -hmm. um, very real. Yeah. Well, you know, this is this is ultimately about the reproduction of 
of who society's for and who it's not for. Even even down to the kind of disproportionality that Miriam was pointing to in terms of these library board seats being majority appointment, right? And this being a, a position or a type of uh, aspect of the municipality that is seen as actually inherently political because it's within whatever the entrenched politics of governance may be at that moment, right? Like these, the frustrating thing I think that ultimately, you know, can come of the oversimplicity of the way this is conveyed also as a, as a struggle or as um, even just a description of the problem or what's going on is mm-hmm. that you know, as uh, just to echo, you know, everything that everyone said for the last hour plus, you know, this is about not just like putting the book back on the shelf. And um, that is important, sure. But the ultimate struggle is actually not only, you know, much bigger, but it also is a, a moment where you can actually really see with quite remarkable clarity how the state builds itself and how each of us as individuals have our role to play and our parts to play and the norms that we perform and the ways that we talk about things and talk to each other, whether that's libraries, school boards, COVID or Palestine really matter because they not only shape our political language, but they shape our political reality at the end of the day. They shape Mm. what is reproduced. They, um, you know, I'm thinking so much of the conversation that I had with Rasha um, where, you know, they talked about, you know, the the things that sometimes are repeated, um, you know, that you don't necessarily necessarily uh, know exactly what you're saying, right? Like, you know, theory isn't just theoretical. Theory is also about what are the ideas that we perform in everyday life for each other and how do we set and model, you know, expectations of the people that we're in social relations with. And that's kind of ultimately like what's at the core of also what's at stake in the issue of sort of censorship, right? Like that's why censorship matters because it closes off opportunities for other ways to be in the world and says that they're not okay. And we don't want that. Uh I do still feel very energized, I have to say. Like this (laughs) entire time, I keep thinking of what it was like the first time I went to a library board meeting. Mm. Um, And the library board seemed very anxious because there were only two people in that room who weren't on the library board (laughs) and they (laughs) had it in their mind that like anybody that we don't recognize is here to fuck with us right but i mean also it was like oh they're so used to not interacting with the people who they are working on behalf of that really one or two people showing up can make a profound difference in the power dynamic Mm -hmm. and if i had to leave people with anything it would be that you know even on zoom like they're just used to Nobody paying attention to them, which the right has exploited very masterfully, but in solidarity with librarianship, it's also very easy to show up, um, literally show up in this moment for them. And in so many different ways, too. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Download some PDFs, figure out how your library board is constituted. It's the amount of our government that's just hidden in bad documentation. It's It was a real revelation, even oh, just yeah. For a couple of hours, yeah. Everything is like this, you know. the The fantasy of of competence competency is is alive and well in the United States. It's our main power <laughs> and export. 
But no, I think this is such a great place to leave it. Melissa, thank you so much. Maryam, now that you're listening at, at home to this last part, <laughs> thank you as well so much. Um, mm-hmm. And folks, again, if you want to get involved with any of the organizing that the uh, Leftist Library Project is doing, um, that For the People Leftist Library Project is doing, uh, their website, again, is librariesforthepeople.org. We will put links to everything uh, Maryam mentioned in the episode description, of course, and also to... Melissa's piece, which again is called Librarians Didn't Sign Up to Be Queer Activists, but beginning this year, they are, which was published in September by The New Republic. Melissa, as always, such a pleasure to have you on. Maryam, likewise. Thank you guys, as always. Anytime I'll be back. Thank you so much. And patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. To support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod to get access to our second weekly bonus episode and entire back catalog of bonus episodes. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, you can share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, request your favorite books, including Health Communism and A Short History of Trans Misogyny and all of the fantastic books by our two guests today at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. And as always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever, stay alive another week.
All right, that was so fun. Hell yeah. Seriously. I was like, if I didn't have things on my schedule this afternoon, I was going to be like, okay, can we just start recording a second episode right now about the lavender scare? <laughs> right? Yes. Well, we'll hold that thought, Jules. <laughs>